Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Dr. Richard Savell. Dr. Savell is the Associate Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. He also is an Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care Podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email info at sccm.org. Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast, recorded Tuesday, December 19th, 2006. I'm Dr. Richard Savell. Today we will be speaking with William Dagger, PharmD, as well as Dr. John McGregor, MD-PhD. They are with us today to discuss an article in the December 2006 issue of Critical Connections entitled, Recent Advances in Cardiology Pharmacotherapies for the ICU Clinician. The article itself was written by Joseph Dasta, PharmD, from Ohio State University, and Dr. Jacqueline LeBlanc, PharmD, BCPS, from the University of Oklahoma. Dr. Dager is a pharmacy specialist at UC Davis Medical Center and is a clinical professor of pharmacy at UC San Francisco School of Pharmacy. Dr. McGregor is a professor of medicine in the Division of Cardiology at the University of California San Francisco Medical Center and is director of the Coronary Angiography Laboratory at San Francisco General Hospital. Thank you so much both for joining us today. Thank you for asking. Yes, pleasure. As uh, I was discussing with you before, uh, I wanted to uh, divide up the uh, podcast today into a couple talking points on acute heart failure, uh, congestive heart failure, and then conclude with a couple comments on the acute coronary syndrome. And uh, as I've mentioned before in the podcast, I'm a uh, surgical intensivist, and uh, many, many, many times these kinds of issues come up where the primary problem may not relate to either congestive heart failure or an acute coronary syndrome, but nevertheless, many of these issues are interacting in terms of coming up with a coherent plan for the patient. So why don't we get right into it, and perhaps I'll start out with you, Dr. McGregor, and allow you, Dr. Dagger, to make some comments. Uh, Talking about acute heart failure, there seems to be much controversy surrounding the role of digoxin, which, uh, as you are obviously well aware, is a very old drug, but in terms of its optimal use for patients with congestive heart failure, uh, both in and out of the ICU, I thought we could let you start out by there, perhaps giving us some of your perspectives. As you know, there have been several studies uh, regarding the uh, safety and efficacy of uh, digitalis uh, in treating heart failure and uh, atrial fibrillation, uh, that is, controlling the rate in atrial fibrillation. I think the general conclusions from these trials uh, is that uh, digitalis uh, makes patients uh, feel better, that is, it improves the symptoms, but it has no impact on, uh, or no favorable impact on survival. In patients who have heart failure and atrial fibrillation, uh, it's been used in the past to slow the heart rate, but it's relatively ineffective compared to beta blockers and calcium channel blockers in doing that. It uh, can control the rate uh, in patients at rest, but with uh, even small amounts of exertion, the heart rate's often uh, 
go uh, right back up into uh, undesirable um, territory. Uh, and then, of course, there's the recent uh, analysis of the uh, DIGE trial that was sponsored by NIH that raises the question as to whether uh, there are significant deleterious effects, uh, including uh, reduced survival in women with heart failure who take digitalis. Dr. Dagger, any comments from your perspective, uh, from a pharmacy perspective? Yeah, I think uh, just the thing I would add to Dr. McGregor's comments is that uh, in the um, the trial I think he's mentioning, which was uh, back in 2003, they kind of target a range in heart failure, and uh, a higher range may be necessary for certain effects as far as record, uh, uh, controlling rapid ventricular rates. But uh, in the ICU setting, we also have changing renal function dynamics, changes in potassium, and other issues that also create uh, additional risks for toxicity. And I think this is uh, one of the things, besides the evidence being lacking, uh, in fact, in the heart failure guidelines, they downgraded the um, role of digoxin in that setting. And, and uh, also, when you look at the rate control issues, uh, what are the toxicities? Well, it, and, and just to try and encapsulate things for some of the listeners, and this is to both of you, I guess, but it, it sounds like it's a drug that's definitely going more and more out of favor. It's a drug that probably if somebody's been on it, you would consider continuing it, certainly in the outpatient setting. But for many newly diagnosed patients with congestive heart failure, it's a drug that you're less likely to start. Is that a reasonable statement? I, I think that's a reasonable statement, uh, uh, again, it can be used uh, in chronic heart failure patients to reduce symptoms, but I, I completely agree with what uh, Dr. Uh, Dager uh, said uh, regarding uh, uh, digoxin in the intensive care unit uh, and the potential toxicities, uh, especially hyperkalemia. All right. Um... One of the uh, issues that's sort of along those lines, and uh, I guess I'd like to start again with Dr. McGregor, um, many times working in the ICU, we'll have a patient with a clear-cut history of congestive heart failure and will be on many appropriate medicines for congestive heart failure, uh, and we've discussed these before, and they're mentioned in the article, beta blockers, ACE inhibitors, uh, diuretics, spironolactone, and, and perhaps digoxin. And yet, as part of a, a relatively routine echo performed in the ICU and, and read officially by a cardiologist, it may be read as normal. And uh, I was wondering, from a cardiologist's perspective, uh, to other intensivists and other critical care practitioners, what, are, what does that mean? Does that mean that the, that the echo was wrong or that the patient didn't have the diagnosis? Perhaps if you could talk about that. I think um, we've all seen this. Uh, I think a large uh, proportion of these patients uh, carry the diagnosis of congestive heart failure uh, just based on symptoms. And as you know, the symptoms of breathlessness and, and so forth associated with congestive heart failure are somewhat uh, nonspecific and attributable to a number of different uh, conditions. I think uh, that would be one consideration. Is, is, was the, how was the diagnosis made to begin with? Was it made based on clinical symptoms plus an echocardiogram, or was it just based on uh, clinical symptoms alone, and it's, it's, the patient doesn't really have congestive heart failure? Other uh, potential reasons for seeing a discrepancy like this would be for patients who have uh, transient reductions 
in left ventricular function, for example, patients with myocarditis or patients with postpartum cardiomyopathy. Condition, both conditions uh, can improve uh, substantially and the ventricular function can actually normalize. The uh, ejection fraction that you see by echo is to, uh, or the, the overall function you see by echo is also uh, related to loading conditions of the heart. So if, if those are uh, altered, you, you may see uh, the differences uh, like you've described. The other thing to, con- to keep into consideration <clears throat> or to keep under consideration is sometimes this combination of drugs, the uh, beta blockers and the ACE inhibitors and so forth, can uh, substantially improve uh, the ejection fraction by echo. So that would be another uh, uh, consideration. And under those circumstances, of course, it would be important to continue the um, drugs as much as possible. So, Dr. Degger, um, what are your perspectives on some of these issues of regarding a patient who comes into the ICU with a history of congestive heart failure, and yet their echo appears to be normal? Well, I think the thing I would add beyond what Dr. McGregor said was, you know, I guess not just the ejection fraction itself, but how much filling is in the heart. You can have limited ventricular filling, and yet a good uh, ejection fraction have uh, reduced cardiac output. So I always try to, to keep those two points uh, when I'm looking at echoes or echo, when I'm reading the echo results. And for a pharmacist, I guess my perspective is that that's helpful in determining also drug elimination. Uh, medications are eliminated through the kidney and liver, but the heart has to push the agent there. And so if they've got reduced cardiac outputs and you have some means to determine that, you can also assess potential changes in the clearance of the drugs, whether they're getting better or worse. And uh, also, you know, for the ICU setting, uh, keep in mind mechanical things can also influence this, such as positive indexatory pressures greater than 10 uh, millimeters mercury sometimes are associated with reduced uh, preload, and that can affect cardiac output. And as you change ventilator settings, you actually might be inducing certain degrees of reduced cardiac outputs that might influence uh, certain drugs, especially those with more narrow therapeutic indexes. So just uh, another thought when you're looking at uh, and trying to assess cardiac function. our next point is to discuss uh, another uh, controversial drug in in both the ICU and non-ICU setting, which is naziratide. Um, and perhaps, Dr. Degg, if you'd like to start out talking about some of the recent controversies and perhaps uh, from a pharmacy perspective, uh, designing good trials for drugs like this seems to be uh, challenging. And there's a lot of controversies and a lot of um, pros and cons, and individuals sit on kind of both sides of that fence. Uh, Probably one of the more landmark trials, the VMAC trial, uh, which compared nasiratide to nitroglycerin, but uh, a large argument with that trial is that the nitroglycerin dose was uh, on the very on low, on the low side, and they only did the infusion for a short period of time. I think it was around three hours or so. And uh, with that, did we get a good measure of the effect? And also, uh, we're using surrogate markers in a lot of these trials, uh, pulmonary capillary wedge pressures. But what does that really have to do? with true outcomes. So as they design new trials, it's important to look at how good your surrogate marker is. And a lot of times, the more important critical issue is length of stays in the ICUs, morbidity and mortality related to the agents. But also, in many of these heart failure trials, there's the importance of comparing it to something that is not just a standard of care, but also adequately dosed agents with the proper dosage form and such. 
now, given that, uh, with the nisiratide, and sure, there have been lots of situations that we have used it in patients where they've failed other conventional therapies, and there's uh, definitely a role in it, and there's an emerging role for this agent in even the outpatient or, in our case, uh, 24-hour ER hold where we're using it as a means to prevent the hospital admission. Uh, we know that uh, if we don't use these kind of agents, then we may have to use other alternatives, such as a uh, catecholamine. And we're uh, evidently aware of the uh, ventricular ectopies and other risks associated with those agents. So uh, which are you going to choose, and based on the data uh, uh, set for each? Also, you know, Chris, there's this big issue with uh, two-minute analysis that uh, were published a few years back by Sackner-Bernstein. And I think you have to be careful when you look at any meta-analysis because they have to be based on a good foundation trial to benchmark them. And this is what we call a funnel plot in any meta-analysis. You take the, the trial that really is the, the key trial that's well-randomized, well-controlled, and see how these other trials compare to that to see if you're looking at reasonable data. And uh, without that, it's hard to say, you know, how strong the evidence is from a meta-analysis. And uh, the two dealing with creatinine functions and the other one with uh, mortality at 30 days out, of course, long after the drug has stopped infusing. And you have to ask, what are other uh, confounding factors present? Uh, so I don't know if we have a lot of clarity as far as the real role of nasiratide in this setting, although there are going to be those patients that definitely can benefit from such procedures or therapies. Uh, it's important to sort out which those patients are, but also use other proven therapies at adequate doses uh, as well in your approach to managing these patients. Dr. McGregor, would you like to uh, give a little bit of your perspective here in terms of where it's clinically being used at, uh, at San Francisco General or how it's been changing over time? I used it sparingly uh, to begin with and uh, rarely use it uh, now, uh, primarily because of the safety concerns that uh, Dr. Dager uh, brought up and because in the majority of cases, uh, drugs like nitroglycerin and, and diuretics in combination work, uh, work pretty well. I agree with uh, most of uh, your points. Uh, the uh, trials uh, leading to its approval in the United States were based on um, hemodynamic endpoints like pulmonary capillary wedge pressure reduction and uh, symptom improvement. And, uh, of course, both of those are uh, Im important uh, uh, markers of improvement in the patient's uh, status. Uh, it's a vasodilator uh, with no positive inotropic effects, so it, it doesn't have uh, as much of the uh, arrhythmia potential as uh, for instance, a combination of dobutamine and dopamine would have. I think the, the meta-analyses raise uh, you know, sa the safety concerns, the, the worsening renal failure and the reduced survival, although it's not clear exactly what the mechanism of that is. I think you, you have to pay attention to uh, that sort of data. I thought we'd uh, move on to the uh, sort of second half of the podcast and just really point out some interesting new updates in the setting of the acute coronary syndrome, where really the paradigm has continued to be uh, aggressive early recognition, aggressive application of antithrombotics, antiplatelet agents, uh, cardioprotective agents, beta blockers, ACE inhibitors, high-dose lipid-lowering agents, and aggressive evaluation for early percutaneous intervention. But there seem to be some controversies brewing, and, and I'd like to actually start with Dr. McGregor, if I could, on some of the issues that are 
somewhat intertwined, the role of the new antiplatelet agents uh, combined with old antiplatelet agents and some of the controversy brewing surrounding uh, drug-eluting stents, if you could uh, talk about that. Well, the controversy surrounding drug-eluting stents is, has, has been in the newspapers was, uh, recently and was the subject of uh, an FDA uh, advisory panel uh, meeting uh, about a week ago. And uh, the issue is that with drug-eluting stents uh, compared to bare metal stents, there seems to be um, a heightened and ongoing risk for late stent thrombosis. And uh, the reason for this uh, is that the uh, polymer uh, through which the uh, drug, uh, either sirolimus or paclitaxel, uh, is attached to the uh, metal stent plus the drug seem to have several uh, undesirable (laughs) outcomes. Uh, Of course, the desirable efficacy outcome is that both drugs reduce the rate of restenosis, and by doing that, they reduce the rate of target vessel revascularization uh, down to around 5% or so, since where the, <clears throat> the rate is around 20%. The problem with the drug-eluting stents is that the polymer and the drug uh, can cause a vasculitis uh, or an inflammatory reaction in a tissue adjacent to the stent, They also, either related to the vasculitis or independent of that, reduce the rate of um, endothelialization of the metal stent struts. And they also apparently reduce the absolute amount of um, endothelialization to the point where um, bare metal stents are totally endothelialized at about six months. Uh, bare metal stents at the same time are maybe 50% or less endothelialized, and they remain that way indefinitely. So just the fact that you have exposed metal in the coronary artery is going to predispose to uh, stent thrombosis. Now, the data that shows this this ongoing risk uh, comes from two European studies. One is the uh, Bern rotterdam study, and the other is a study called the Basket Late Trial. Both of them show heightened risk of stent thrombosis. The Burn rotterdam trial shows up to, I think, three years or four years uh, curves that uh, have an incidence of stent thrombosis of about 0.5 or 0.6% per year uh, with no evidence that the uh, risk is, is leveling off. That is an ongoing risk. And again, it's I think it's based on the... Uh, pathology here, which is the failure of the uh, metal stents to um, fully endothelialize. And uh, obviously, this is an important uh, problem in, uh, in ICU medicine because I'm sure many ICU patients come in having had uh, drug-eluting stents. Uh, I believe 6 million drug-eluting stents have been implanted in the last uh, three years uh, worldwide. And so the issue becomes what to do. Many of these patients need surgery. Some of them have, you know, GI bleeding, and they're on aspirin and clopidogrel to reduce the risk of stent thrombosis. And there are lines of evidence that suggest that long-term use of aspirin and clopidogrel together, dual uh, antiplatelet therapy, uh, reduce this uh, stent thrombosis risk. Um, 
what what does the intensivist uh, do uh, for for these patients? Obviously, if they're bleeding, you need to discontinue these drugs, uh, but that's going to uh, place the patient at uh, higher risk for uh, stent thrombosis and acute coronary syndrome. So I think the answer is you just need to be aware of this and carefully weigh the risks and benefits in each individual case. And if you need to discontinue the drugs for a period of time until the patient's more stable, just heightened monitoring for uh, signs of uh, stent thrombosis would be uh, would be indicated. And, what, of course, when the patient is stable enough, resumption of uh, one or preferably both uh, drugs. And Dr. Dagger, so uh, you know, a bunch of questions for you along the same lines because this comes up uh, actually with surprising frequency. You know, how, uh, how long should the patient be off the drugs if they're going to go for surgery to allow the surgeons to operate safely? How long can they be safely off these drugs? And then after surgery, uh, when can these drugs be safely restarted and what's the best way to do that? So why don't you take it from here and sort of share us your thoughts from a pharmacy perspective on some of these uh, antiplatelet agents? Okay, you know, focusing on the antiplatelet agents uh, relative to, I guess the first part is when they're in and whether you stop it or not, uh, bleeding and such is um, the question, and I think Dr. McGregor really points out, is uh, are they actually having acute coronary syndrome, so are there other reasons that you have to stop it and uh, follow up for any signs of um, uh, myocardial ischemia, possibly due to uh, stent-related problems, but also keep in mind that uh, after a period of time, there are other vessels that are not uh, intervened on that actually could become uh, the vessel of uh, incidence for acute coronary events, too. And so we have to keep in mind that the disease extends beyond the stent stented, uh, area. Now, if you have someone who you need to stop the therapy for surgery, I think the question is what kind of surgery and procedure you're doing. If it's uh, a line placement and uh, the bleeding risks are fairly minor, I think uh, you'd have to really assess what you're doing and the risk of bleeding versus the risk of stopping the therapies. Although a small bit of blood in the wrong place, if you're doing an LP or, or such, obviously those are situations where you have to be very cognizant of the degree of anticoagulation or antiplatelet effects you have and the risk of a small bit of blood in the wrong spot. So those are... Uh, things that should be sorted out. Uh, now, if you do want to do that and you want to stop these agents, uh, there's um, really not a lot of consensus for how long. Generally, for clopidogrel, the best uh, strength we have is the recommendations that are made as far as uh, patients going for uh, bypass surgery where they suggest somewhere between five to seven days out is a safe period of time. However, in many cases, we do have to uh, do such uh, procedures earlier, and uh, it becomes uh, a, a large complication sometimes in the OR just to try to manage some of the bleeding and how you can prevent that. Uh, what's not clear and what's going in the future is other ways of determining the degree of uh, antiplatelet effects are, are present. Uh, we have such monitors, and we can look at ADPs, and such for doing that, but uh, I think in the next few years we're going to have uh, more tests that can tell us not only the effectiveness of the antiplatelet therapies, how much is present, but also get an idea of whether there's certain degrees of resistance to these agents present as well. So I think that's on the horizon. And uh, uh, shorter-acting agents actually are being uh, also explored. Uh, Kangalore, Kangalore is one that just comes to mind that's in the pipeline 
that uh, you know the effects are fairly rapidly removed. So we might have these options as well in the future uh, for managing these patients. Um, I'd like to uh, conclude the the interview today, and, and again, I will start with Dr. McGregor and and uh, see if you, Dr. Dagger, would like to make any final comments. Is this is a, an issue that uh, I know can be challenging both for cardiologists and for intensivists, and it's already come up in my rounds today like four times. Is the critically ill patient with the slightly elevated troponin, and you know, defining slightly elevated uh, depending on the hospital, but you know, less than one or one to two, where clearly there's some evidence of myocardial injury, but uh, uh, how how to proceed in a patient like that, and what does that actually mean uh, to the cardiologist who's often asked, I would imagine, to evaluate uh, a patient like this in an ICU setting? It's a, it's a complicated uh, problem. The, the first question that I think a cardiologist would want to answer is, is the patient having an acute coronary syndrome? And in addition to the biomarkers, the other elements of acute coronary syndrome are characteristic symptoms like chest pain, shortness of breath, and... Uh, electrocardiographic changes. So if you have a patient who has those you know, typical symptoms plus EKG changes, then the troponin or the CPKMB are used to confirm the diagnosis uh, and also have prognostic uh, implications. Now, patients who come in, for instance, with you know, uh, typical ICU problems like sepsis or anemia or hypoxia may have troponin elevations for other reasons. In the case of sepsis, there's um, increased uh, demand. In the case of uh, anemia and hypoxia, there's reduced supply of oxygen. Uh, so, again, it's, it's and, and in both of those, or all three of those cases, it reflects uh, that the elevated troponin is going to reflect some amount of myocardial damage, and there uh, are differing opinions about the prognostic implications, but there is evidence that uh, elevated troponin, even from these problems, uh, that is not associated with acute coronary syndrome carry uh, adverse prognostic uh, uh, implications. But I, I think that's the, uh, the, the basic way we work it up. Dr. Dagger? Uh, I think the other thing I'd uh, probably add is, you know, looking at the ICU patient, and as, as Dr. McGregor explains, there could be something acutely the sepsis going on. Is um, If you have an elevated troponin, uh, I think it's important also make sure that you wait an adequate timeline for it to be elevated to a degree that might help you in the diagnosis. So, you know, we know that if they come in with an acute coronary syndrome in the ER setting, you want to make sure you're at least six hours out before you, you measure that. So even though there's never been evidence suggesting that the uh, true implications of serial troponin, sometimes I would ask the question, you know, we're seeing this now, maybe we should repeat it, not only to knee-jerk on one value, but also see if there's a trend that's happening. And sometimes, you know, pharmacologically, you can say, well, is there anything in the meantime that I can use that's not going to harm the patient, but should I have an acute coronary uh, event present, maybe at least initiate that portion of the therapy so that uh, I'm not at least too far behind once I make my decision uh, or make my final diagnosis. So to sort that out sometimes and uh, be prospective uh, is at least an approach that I've sometimes uh, used. Well, and again, as we've mentioned, uh, many times patients can tolerate things like beta blockers and high-dose lipid-lowering agents while it's all being determined how significant uh, the troponin elevation may be, right? Yeah, but, you know, there's a lot of controversy as far as, you know, using a high-dose uh, statin and, you know, whether it's going to cause uh, positive effects long-term, but I think one of the things that is clear, though, from an ICU clinician's perspective in such patients 
is uh, we do know from some of the uh, older GP2B3A trials that if they come in on a statin and they have acute coronary syndrome, it's important that they go home on a statin. If you discharge them and they are not on uh, some of these therapies, uh, not just a statin but other therapies, they're beta blockers for the heart failure or such, uh, and uh, they're sent out without them, then in the outpatient setting there's a lot of um, catching up that has to be done. So not only what you do in the ICU, but when you're sending them after your care into the next uh, realm of their uh, management is to, to be considerate of those factors. Well, I'm, uh, I know that almost every year they have uh, uh, at least one session on acute coronary syndromes and cardiology issues in, uh, in the ICU at the annual Congress, and I'm grateful that uh, you guys were able to join us today to help shed some light on it. Today in the podcast, we've been speaking with Dr. William Dagger, uh, PharmD, as well as Dr. John McGregor, MD-PhD, focusing on some important issues and updates on acute heart failure and acute coronary syndrome in the critically ill patient. Thank you again for joining us. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Please note that Dr. Dager is not only a clinical professor of pharmacy at the UC San Francisco School of Pharmacy, but he is a professor of medicine at the University of California Davis School of Medicine in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine. This concludes our podcast for Tuesday, December 19, 2006. If you have comments, questions, or ideas for future podcasts, please call the Society of Critical Care Medicine's audio feedback line at 1-847-493-6498 to share your thoughts. Critical Connections is the official bi-monthly news magazine of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, offering the latest information about critical care to healthcare professionals. Members of the Society of Critical Care Medicine receive a free subscription as well as other benefits. For more information, visit www.sccm.org. Thanks again for listening. Register now for the Society's 36th Critical Care Congress to be held in Orlando, Florida, USA, February 17th through the 21st, 2007. Connect with your colleagues and gain a multi-professional perspective on clinical topics relevant to your daily ICU environment by attending the various cutting-edge sessions, hands-on workshops, informative symposia, and exciting social engagements. Don't miss the largest multi-professional critical care event of the year. Register today by speaking with an SCCM customer service representative at 1-847-827-6888 or by visiting www.sccm.org.